Hello, this is Dr. Amy Lindsay, and I'm here to remind you that the information in this podcast is not medical or other professional advice. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. You should not rely on anything you hear as a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional who is familiar with your personal situation. Listening to this podcast may, however, give you a sense of belonging, make you spit take your coffee, realize that DJs can do more than play music, uplift you during a shit day, teach you that sometimes doctors swear too much, or remind you that you are not alone. All right, we are back last week. We had a pretty powerful, I think, uh, uh, B-side. I talked about the death of my sister. If you haven't downloaded that one or listened to it, go back uh, and check that out. We talk a lot about grief and um, the do's and don'ts. A lot of those coming at me still, but, uh, you know, feeling, eh, I'm not feeling better. I'm just, time's passing and it's getting less shitty. The overwhelm is lessening, mm. but the the sort of grief haze is still there a little bit. And, of course, the devastation and the sadness and, you know, waking up in the middle of the night to pee and then you're like, oh, fuck, Lee died. Yeah, that's a weird middle-of-the-night thought that I've had many times. Yeah, so that will continue, as we know. Um, but we've been thinking a lot about family and our relationships with our family. And um, this podcast, our guest today, we're going to talk more about that and fatherhood. And um, I, it made me think about when I was a kid, you know, I have 10 brothers, okay? 10. Mm-hmm. And just think of all the dudes in the Bible and, you know, all her brother's names. (laughs) And I also have always loved to play basketball. And it started in the driveway of my at my parents' house. The basketball hoop was connected to above the driveway. And I don't know, since I could walk, I've been playing basketball and I'd play with my brothers all the time. And when I was a young girl, you know, I used to go out there and they'd all take their shirts off and put their shirts in their back pockets. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and so I would. I'd take my shirt off and put it in my back pocket. What the fuck did I know? There's no... How old were you? I don't know. Like six? Okay. You know? And... If you said 20, that would have been something. But go <laughs> Well, ahead. I do that now yeah, with yeah, you, yes. you know, when yeah. we play midnight basketball. Yeah, but that's pocket. different. Yep. That's different. Yep. That's like... It's a whole game, but you don't have to go basketball. There. <laughs> I don't know. I just made that up. Maybe we should try it. It's kind down. of like, do you blame me? It's like strip poker, but yeah, like but... strip horse where like, if you miss a shot, you have to take some clothing off. <laughs> I just invented a game on this podcast That's good. on the spot. Definitely not scripted. I'm sure it you... is it's called midnight basketball it's and what that's code for strip basketball. <laughs> <laughs> Every time you miss a shot, you take a piece of clothing off. That's right. Okay. Okay. Moving on. Um, And I remember when I became like 10, right? No boobs, but 10, right? You're, you're, you're double digits now. One zero. You're bumping up against potential early puberty, that kind of thing. And I was outside uh, playing basketball. I had my shirt off. It was in my back pocket. I was playing with my brothers. And my mom comes out in enraged, like she was enraged, screaming at me. And I remember she had the, the pink spongy curlers in her hair and grabbed me 
and pulled me inside and got my shirt and put it on me and lectured me in the kitchen that uh, it was inappropriate and how dare I. And it came from this very critical, blaming, shaming way. And I remember being so confused because, you know, all of our shame and our guilt and our, and all the criticisms and things that those are learned. Like we make that shit up. Like someone teaches us that. And I'll never forget that because one minute I'm playing basketball, no shame in my game. And the next minute I'm being screamed at in the kitchen by my mother. Name all your brothers. Mark, Gary, David, Paul, Todd, Brad, Greg, Brent, Brian, John. Hey, 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 it's the doctor and the DJ, doctor and the DJ. Today on the Doctor and the DJ podcast, we're going to find out more about what Amy meant by midnight basketball. We're also going to talk to Nick Fershaw of the Paternal Podcast, paternalpodcast.com for more information, a great podcast. And we are going to be listening to the music of Blushing. I love this record. If you are a shoegaze fan like me, you're going to love this record too. Possessions is their new album. We also have new sponsors. They actually pay for this podcast. We're excited because we use... I know this sounds like I'm making it up, but we use all the products that are actually supporting this podcast. So you'll be hearing from Minor Figures, you'll be hearing about Flying Apron, and you'll be hearing from the wonderful people at Wonderground. Thank you all. So, uh, Amy, did you have dreams of people after they died? Did they visit you at all? Any close relatives that have passed? You've had quite a few. Have you ever had that happen? Well, multiple times, and then I've got one better. Mm. I dreamt my brother died two months before he died. And I dreamt it. It was like a scene out of a movie. He was wearing a red snowsuit laying in the hospital and he sat up and my entire family was in the room and he said, I love you. And then he flatlined and he died in an avalanche and he was wearing like a dark orange snowsuit and he died at the hospital. What did you do with that information? I was a little freaked out. I never thought like, Oh, I could have done something. Right. right. That thought never came into my head, but it just, I actually felt a sense of peace or something because in my, it was like in my dream, he came ahead of time to make sure I knew he loved me because he was my older brother and kind of a dick, you know, (laughs) I mean, I loved him, but like in our relationship, like he was always teasing me and shit, you know, like I know he loved me, but he was always fucking teasing me. So, and then I don't recall any dreams of him after, but my sister, so I dreamt a horrible dream about her 
like it was like a bloody mess and she was screaming for her life and then she died. And then like six months later, she was murdered and she was screaming for her life as she was murdered. And she, I would have these dreams that she would come and not know where she was or what she was supposed to do or where she was supposed to go. And that happened a few times. And I would have dreams that she would be sitting in the living room in my parents' house and we'd all be sitting there and she would just be confused. Like what is happening? And that made me sad because it, you know, whether that's my own shit or whether that's something with her soul's progression, I don't know. I've said this before. I don't claim to know the secrets of the universe, but it was sad to me that her death was so violent and then she was confused. It like, that was the sensation I got. Yeah. That was my dad afterwards. I, I think I've told that story where I was sitting yeah. in the church and he looks around and he doesn't understand that the funeral's his. Yeah. And he keeps asking me, where, what is this? Where am I, what am I doing? And I walked him to the car and he drove off confused. My mom, after she died, I had all kinds of crazy things happen. It's like a porthole opened up. I, I've, I don't know if I've told these stories, but just hearing voices and we should do a whole yeah. thing on ghosts because we just, we've talked about it a little yeah, bit. We should go full podcast. in. I want to get like a ghost, uh, uh, a ghost expert or a life after death the expert. Yeah. Yeah. I'm all, I'm all about it. We just, we ignore this stuff. I think at our own peril because it, it just changed things for me, things I saw and heard and, and I'm, I need proof and I was getting it. And with my mom, I just had the one where she was, she would come over for Thanksgiving and, um, she had a, I had a dream that she was just getting Thanksgiving dinner ready. And, uh, I came, which is weird. Cause I don't remember ever cooking the Thanksgiving dinner, but uh, anyway, she was standing there and I came up and said, mom, what are you doing here? You're not supposed to be here. You're, you're dead. You're gone. And she smiled and disappeared. <laughs> and my sister who just passed, she had a very vivid dream right after my mom died. And she was sitting in the room. In, in our house with my mom and my grandma. My grandma had passed the same way, lung cancer in the hospital. That's where my grandma passed. And um, But they were sitting in the room and my sister came in and she was asking um, what they were doing there. Like, hey, what are you doing here? This is great to see you. And they were talking to her and having, you know, um, a really nice conversation. And she kept thinking something's off. And she was like, wow, what is it? And, 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 my, and my sister who, who would never make this up? This is not my sister's way. She's like, I finally said, wait a second, you guys are dead. You both died. And my mom said, yeah, we didn't, we didn't want to say anything, but yeah, we're, we, we died. We, we were hoping you would just enjoy this time. And you want to know why? And Lee said, why? Said, because you keep asking, can I, if I could just have one more day, if I could just have one more day, well, this is your one more day. And all we're doing is sitting around and talking like we always do. So you'll always remember that. That's how we'd spend the day. And we spent days like that. And then she woke up, said it was, it, it made her feel so much better. Mm -hmm. And then with my sister recently, I uh, woke up, as you know. Um, oh, yeah, I know. At the time of the <laughs> death. And well, I woke up at the time of the death, the first. Oh, yeah. When she died. And I didn't know that. I didn't learn until hours later that that is when she died. It was the ex like exact moment, it sounded like, or the time that was given to me early in the morning. 
but I knew something was off. And then later that night is when I woke up and there was a small girl in the room and she was holding like a stuffy or something. And she's just like, I, can't, I don't understand. I don't understand what's going on. What's happening? I can't figure this out. She kept just saying, figure it out. And I, and I said, and I was, and I was saying, what, what, say that again, say it again. And I have a little sleep app that actually picked up the recording of me saying that out loud because I didn't think it happened. I suddenly was convincing myself it happened, but I'm, I'm just pleading with this person to not leave. And what, what did you say? And it didn't even occur to me that that might be my sister, but that's how my, that, that's the age I think I've, I've gone back most with my sister is around where, where she, where that's this girl was in my dream. She was very blurry. It was very blurry, like a movie, like they blurred the person out and it was in the dark. Ooh. Well, as you know, I woke up yeah. right at the same time as you did. And I yelled, what are you holding? Yeah, true story. So she's like, my fucking stuffy. There's <laughs> a stuffy. I don't, and I haven't had one since. And I, and I really haven't had dreams with any of them since. I just mm-hmm. think I have the one and then I move on from it. Um, and, and speaking of, you know, the, the um, transitioning here to our guest, which I want to talk about. Really quick, I'm, I'm really excited about our guest, Nick Fershaw, coming up in a little bit. He is the host of a great podcast. Paternal. Paternal podcast, which is uh, a podcast about parenting and manhood and the challenges of being a father and a son. And you don't have to be a father and a son, to, I think, to enjoy this interview, especially because, you know, Amy's there. And uh, <laughs> asked some great questions. And i um, really excited to talk to him. When he first launched his podcast... Um, I was an immediate yes to be a guest on there and told the story of me and my father and uh, my challenges as a father and a lot around this new generation of of fathers parenting, I think, who, you know, actually are parenting and involved and kind of confused about the whole deal. Um, so, yeah, so we kind of continue that conversation a lot more. And and I got to say with uh, with Lee, my sister passing, uh, it really it really transported me back to all of them, like all of my family members and I don't know if that happened to you when when someone passed in your life, but I I just it was hard because I was I found myself and and we were Amy and I we were holed up in a Spokane uh, hotel um, for days and having these long talks, and I was in the city I grew up in, um, and we went and visited my old house. If you follow me, DJ John Richards on Instagram, I I put up some some pictures and things. Um, my sister, by the way, had planted this tiny little pine tree in the garden when she was little. She got it from school. You know, oh, bring home a tree, plant it somewhere. Well, you don't plant it in your front yard. It's a pine tree. It's going to get huge. But Lee's like, oh, we're put it here. And I remember that day we dug it out. My mom said, oh, this tree's going to be enormous. I, I was laughing. And she actually said, well, by the time it gets that big, I'll be dead. It won't matter. Yeah, Little did she know. True story. Anyways, we went and visited the house. That motherfucking tree is huge. That tree it's is the so whole big. It is It giant. is like, <laughs> I pray the people living in that house, that, like that tree doesn't get hit by lightning or get blown over in a storm. It is, it is, it is the entire yeah. yard. Pretty proud of that. And, uh, you know, and I went back and the neighborhood was in good shape and, and, and there, I don't know. It felt like it was time to go. Like, I think I've held on. I don't know about you. I just held on to where I grew up a bit. I think because those people died, you know, my parents and um, some friends and, and, and I left there and I came to Seattle, never looked back. Um, and I don't really have a reason to visit anymore, except to go to 4,000 Holes, the best record store in the entire world. Go there if you ever go to Spokane, Washington. Okay. 4,000 Holes. And 
I felt like I was mourning a little bit of the loss of never going back there again, because I will not. And my sister and then my mom came up and then all the relatives came up. And then we were driving around the city, like we'd looking at those old places I, I used to roll. Yeah, I think also the feeling that happens when a sibling dies is you get transported back to your childhood and you have this influx of memories. And it's kind of you and your sibling or siblings against your parents. And I don't mean like to pit you against your parents, but you're not a parent. No. <laughs> and you are a kid. And so you're being kids with your siblings and you're sort of beholden to the same rules of the house and the same personalities of the parents and the same, um, you know, issues or addictions or uh, diseases or disorders or whatever your parents Mm. have. So you're exposed to that same parenting. And same environment. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. I think, I think depending on how you grew up too, I think being my dad being who he was, I think we had sort of a shared mission to deal with him. You know, I want to say he was the enemy, but, but like we had a deal, all of us with that dude. And yeah. I think we did that as a collective front, especially the three of us. Cause my brother had moved out just after a few years from moving there. So I just, part of it was that too, like the three musketeers, you know, it was like my mom, my sister and me. And now it's just me. And that part's tough. And then I go back to that thing we talked about in that last podcast where it's about boundaries and about not enabling. Um, It feels like abandoning when you're enabling. And I think things even, my mom smoked, but she like secretly smoked, but it was like the worst kept secret in my household. Because you're smoking. And everyone like, knew. Oh, everyone knew. She'd go into the bathroom <laughs> and she was stressed out, right? She's a single mom. You know, she started her career over. We were broke for a lot, a lot of that time, you know, like she, she's stressed out, you know, she, she was single the rest of her life, you know? And so she's just letting off steam. She used to be a smoker, started back up again. And it just kills me that I didn't say something and tell her to quit. I know I was younger when I was in the house, but I was old enough to know it was bad, um, I, I always have that. And then I, I go back with my sister. Maybe there was the one thing I didn't say to her that would have got her in rehab or would have helped her turn around. And, and I, and I think that's hard for people. It is for me. Yeah. I think that's what we do. And I think we're hardwired to survive. And so unfortunately it's part of evolution that when something happens, that's traumatic or tragic or ends in the death of someone in our group, right? So our family or a group, if you think of us like animals or like a species, right? And we have to try to learn what went wrong so it doesn't happen again. And how that plays out in human consciousness is through guilt or through regret or through a lot of questions of, you know, what if I said or did this thing? Yeah. And at the end of the day, it's always important to remember it isn't your fault. And there's no way to know what one thing might have changed the circumstance. And it may have had no effect on it at all. And we also don't consider the other 
part that it may have had a more negative effect. Mm-hmm. We always think it's going to have a better effect in some parallel universe, but we don't actually know. But, you know, you just have to be a little gracious uh, with yourself and a little uh, patient and forgiving of yourself because we're hardwired to do that. We're hardwired to try to figure out what went wrong so we can correct so that we can survive. It's so funny because I I think of me and what's someone going to say to me? You know, I think I would never blame you if you didn't come up with the right thing to somehow take me off the wrong path. What don't I, do you know what I mean? And I'm now I'm not smoking or an alcoholic or an addict, but I hadn't even thought about it till we were sitting here talking. Like I wouldn't expect someone else to like, how come you didn't come up with something to save me? Does that, yeah, I don't think I've ever thought of it that way. I don't know what clicked. Yeah. And again, it really comes back to our sense of survival. Yeah. Like our brain is always trying to learn how to survive. So we start asking those questions and we start ruminating and we get anxious because we're trying to figure it out. Like what went wrong? How can we change this? And the fact of the matter is, is that it's not our fault or it's not your fault. And if anything, you know, we were talking about this before about like people who have personality disorders or if they have addiction, they're up against something very difficult. And honestly, it's not up to you to um, be the one to quote, save them or whatever. And the faster you can set a boundary and stop enabling people actually the better because it's sort of like if... I mean, it's not like this. I'm not comparing this at all, but um, just for the sake of an analogy, um, if you let the dog on the sofa and the sofa potentially could harm the dog, but the dog loves the sofa. So you keep letting the dog on the sofa. And one day the dog is in such harm that you're screaming at the dog to get off the sofa. The, The dog's like, the hell? Right. Like the, the enabling has gone on for so long that it becomes confusing to the person. So the sooner you can nip it in the bud, the better for everyone, because you're taking responsibility for yourself. And, and honestly, it's a respect. You respect yourself and you respect the other person that they're an adult and they can get help or they can make their own choices. Right. Like that you're, you believe in them. Like it's respecting them. Yeah, this is very doing a podcast through a pandemic 2022, but I'm actually working this out as we record this live. Um, (laughs) I'm not kidding. Um, I just had a thought about my own depression and I've struggled with when I dropped out of high school, my freshman year, things are going very bad. And my mom supported me and never got down on me, never forced me to do something, never. And people, I remember this, didn't understand why my mom gave up on me. I remember this. Like, why wouldn't you make him go to school? The more she pushed, the less I wanted to go. And so I had all this time, okay? I was home for months and months and months on my own. No more friends, no more support. And you were watching Days of Our Lives. Marlena, Bo, Hope, Patch, Victor Kiriakis, all of them, the whole crew. I remember Bo, Hope, and Victor Kiriakis. That's it. Patch, he had the patch. Ah, yeah. okay. Mm-hmm. And Another World. A little general hospital, but uh, Luke and Laura, you no, know, me up. Young and the Restless was all right, but I don't remember any of the characters. So how good was it? Yeah. How Days good of was Our it? Lives. That was the yeah. shit. So I would sit and watch soap operas, apparently, and every game show. Uh, no whammies. 
Big Money, Press Your Luck, such a good show, and and have to sit and think every day about what was going on. Every day, every day, every day. And I realized, given that space, I started to figure out myself and what I needed to do and what I wanted to do. And I didn't want to be this anymore. I didn't want to feel like this anymore. What can I do? And that's when I reached out and I asked, can I go back to school? What can we do? Can I, you know, I ended up going to therapy. I ended up going to a, like a head start kind of thing. I went to summer schools. I, I said, what else? You know, I was like, what else would you like? Well, I want to play sports again. I played sports all my life. I just stopped. I started playing sports again. I started running again. I think because someone wasn't enabling me, and we're forcing you. They were they were enabling and forcing me. There was a little of both through eighth and ninth grade. It, it really was, and it yeah. was and it was so bad. It was so shitty, and I couldn't figure out. I couldn't figure it out. Like, wh- why are they making? I can't do this. They're making me do something I don't want to do. And so, when I got a chance to actually stop and be, be given some time, I figured out what I wanted to do and how I wanted to get better. And I haven't been that close to suicide or. Um, wanting to end my life or just wanting to give up. I've I've had bits of depression that have been low, but never that low because I think because people just supported me and were there for me, but they weren't making me do something. They couldn't and they force me. enabling you either. And I and I think that that is what it takes is that we have to dig deep inside of ourselves. And I said this last week, we have to take radical responsibility for ourselves. And unfortunately, what happens is we get conditioned with a lot of guilt and shame and blame and complaining. And really, that's just a sign of low self-worth. Well, I've got it all worked out on this podcast. (laughs) Yeah. And so having compassion for the people who raised us and, you know, having compassion for the people we've had to set boundaries with all the same. Perfect segue into our interview with Nick here on the Doctor and the DJ podcast. actually put down in my uh, New Year's resolutions was to play pickleball this year. And I've played two days in a row now. And here's nice. pickleball, in case you don't know. It, here's how it was described to me. It's like standing on a ping pong table. And that's exactly, that's yeah. exactly right. And it is, uh, yeah. our governor is trying to make it the uh, official sport of Washington State. And... I'm here for it. Is that something you guys get to vote oh, on? No. Or is that but, just no. a, Did, uh, an executive Yeah, do you remember voting on a flag or a song or any of that shit? I don't remember <laughs> ever getting the, the, the ask over, uh, over our state's right. like stuff. Um, but I, yeah. the reason is I want to spend more time out playing sports, competitive sports with my buddies. You know, it's been the first thing yeah. to go um, for us, I think, as we get older, is our friends. It's... You, the, yeah. you know, the net, you know, you lose friends exercise clearly on that list as well. That's another thing to go because the priorities, you know, family and work and responsibilities and being an adult. And then you realize like the things that made me really, really happy. I don't do those anymore. They're, that's a flaw in our, in our, in our whole thing, you know? 
Yeah. Yeah. I have to say, though, when I the first time I interviewed you for Paternal, you kind of set me straight in terms of the fact that even at that mm -hmm. point, you guys went to yoga together, mm -hmm. I think. Like you had a lot of things going that my wife and I didn't. Like I think we had younger kids than you at that point. So our life was general chaos. But um, you were ahead of me at that point. So you were still running and going to yoga. You had date night. That's right. Well, we still have date night. In fact, in fact, <laughs> date night was last night. And I was supposed to run a big training run for my marathon today. But date night, oh, you didn't no date it? night took the priority. We had a good date night. I had a good little, little wine and we went to the bar reopened and we were like, this is going to take a backseat. So it is a good to see you. Nick Fershaw of one of my favorite podcasts, parental podcast, who uh, you were nice enough to invite me on. Um, it's been a few years since I've been on there and immediately clicked uh, with you since we go back further than that. Actually, we met before you even launched that podcast. Um, but it's an amazing podcast. I wanted to alert people to you produce, you're right, you're an editor. Um, and it's just one of the few places I've gone or, or had a conversation with someone whose view of fatherhood and our generation of fatherhood has answered some of my questions, sort of parallels some of the things I've been dealing with. So when we had our conversation, I was, uh, was really happy that, that someone was asking those questions. So I wanted to, I wanted to ask you, I wanted to turn it around and ask you some questions as well. And I, th sure. I think the first Nick is, is just. You've been doing, you're clearly a father. You've been doing this podcast. Um, like you said, you started it. You said men aren't great at uh, commiserating and communicating about seeking help or expressing where they feel like they're coming yeah. up short. That was one of the reasons why you started this podcast. What have you learned? What is mm -hmm. something you have learned from this podcast, talking to so many different fathers that maybe, maybe a parallel message that is, um, that, that sort of has gone through a lot of your interviews? Well, I, th I think that, theme right there is one that has come out and you know we've done like 50 plus episodes at this point is that men that we talk to are always appreciative of the opportunity to speak with me but they would speak to their friends too or they would speak with other guys if they had the opportunity they just don't seek it out or maybe they don't feel comfortable asking for it because we've sort of been cultured not to have some of those conversations we talk about the NFL, or we talk about movies, or we talk about a lot, any number of things that are not, that don't pertain to our actual daily life as a parent. So I think one of the themes that's come out over those 50 plus episodes is, yeah, like so many men would say more and would have more conversations if given the opportunity. Mm. That doesn't mean every guy, certainly. But like in, in your example, you and I spoke, I think for the first episode, I think it was in 2017. And the fact that you were willing to sit down and speak so candidly, I mean, you're, you're a professional speaker. I think you're fairly attuned to what's going on in your brain. But like you were so inclined and so eager to speak about things. It really gave me hope that there's probably a lot of other guys that feel the same way. And they're not getting a lot of those outlets in their normal daily life with peers, especially during COVID when nobody was talking to anybody or it certainly felt like you couldn't get together and speak with anybody. So I think, yeah, one of the themes that's come out is that men are certainly eager to chat or eager to talk about the things that are on their mind. And a lot of guys are just trying to figure it out. You know, they're all facing their own thing, but they're all trying to be better maybe than the generation before them or certainly be the best that they can be, so to speak, at, at being a father. Yeah, that's what I struggled with. We talked a bit about is that generation before us that, that there's, mm -hmm. I looked around and I just, you know, my buddies and I didn't have sort of the, I don't want to say role, maybe it's a role model, but, but sort of the example of, of how to parent. And my issue had become, and Amy can back me up here, 
that I struggle a lot that I don't spend enough time with my kids. And so I will lay in bed with Amy, you know, was, you know, into the night, say, hey, what's going on? And I'm, then I'm almost embarrassed to say it again. So, oh, I just feel like I'm a shitty dad. I, I didn't spend. Yeah. That, yeah. I can see Amy. She's like, dude, you, you spent so much time with your, and then has to go through like just regular everyday things. I keep thinking that that's not enough. I kept thinking I'm better now, but I kept thinking that, we have to do, yeah. I have to be one-on-one like as often as possible with activities. You know, the pandemic changed that for me as yeah. a dad. And I was going to ask that question too, just, just the impact you've seen on fatherhood. So for me, just the sheer amount of time from the homeschooling to just, you know, them not being able to go right. do stuff. Um, I, I, yeah. I, I feel like, look, good father or not. I'm around these little dudes all the goddamn time. So something must be yeah. rubbing off on them. Yeah, I'm sure you reached your quota, as did I, so to speak, in 2020 and then 2021. Um, if, if there was time that I missed or I needed to make up for like the first year of my son's life or my daughter's life, when primarily like it is your wife in that first year, the first six to 12 right. months, I felt like. I don't even know if this kid knows that I'm here, you, you know, for the first year or so to speak. I definitely think I've made up for it in the years since and especially during COVID. Um, yeah, but, you know, to go back to your point about like you're unsure about how much time to spend with your kids. I think that goes back to the concept and we see it a lot in the show and it pertains to you, but it pertains to probably 10 to 15 other guys. There's no great male role model or paternal figure in their life when they're growing up. And so they don't know what a father looks like. And so then when they become a father themselves, they're trying to figure it out sort of on the fly. And men, I mean, I'll, I'll speak for myself. I didn't read a lot of parenting books when I became a dad. I probably, I've read them now because of the show. And I've read a thousand memoirs by men because of the show, but I didn't read a lot of parenting books. So I think um, a lot of men don't know where to go for guidance of not just how much time do I spend with my kids, but am I good at this? I don't know if I know, if I know what I'm doing. And um, I think that speaks to potentially, I guess, like a somewhat of a larger crisis. Like I said, we've interviewed 50 some guys and John, you're one of them, but I would guess I'd have to look up the numbers specifically, but I would guess at least 10 to 12 of the guys we've interviewed did not have a positive paternal figure in their life, be it their dad, their grandfather, their stepdad, mom's boyfriend, whatever it is. The dad was absent. They were divorced. The couple, the guy was drunk. The guy was abusive, et cetera. And going into this show, I had no idea that the numbers would be that high. Mm. If that's 20% of the guys that I've spoken to, and you extrapolate that out to the larger population of men, uh, that's kind of frightening. And there's a whole generation of men trying to make up for whatever was lost. Um, what's nice, though, in the case of, I think, of you and a number of the other guests that we've had is like becoming a father gives you the opportunity to heal a lot of that damage or a lot of the trauma that was done to you. And I know you talked about that on an episode, but we've had other guys say that as well. Like, my dad wasn't there. I don't want that to be the case for my kids. And so they are very proactive and very engaged with their kids. Again, they don't know what the quota is, so to speak. They just know they want to do a better job with their kids. So it's been really interesting in a, in a good and bad way, in a bad way to see so many guys had that upbringing mm -hmm. with dads that just weren't around. Um, but it's been really heartening to see a lot of men trying to turn things around for their generation and then the kids. Amy, you, you have a lot of brothers. Um, 
How many? <laughs> I had to think for a sec. I actually had to pause. Ten. Ten brothers. Um, wow. And your parents were were there. Your dad um, was was there for all fourteen children, and he was he was present. You did have a dad there, but how how for you did 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 you see him differently with you than you you did with with his daughters? Was that a different experience that he was present? And and <laughs> the answer seems to be yes. Yeah, um, my dad was involved because he had to be. There's just too many of us. So he he had a, he ran his own business, so he had some flexibility there. So he ran a lot of carpools and a lot of errands and things like that. But I did watch my dad rest a lot more than my mom. I th- I would watch my mom go twenty four seven, and I would I remember watching my dad close his eyes and we, we weren't to bother him. <laughs> And I remember, and I picked up on that early, you know, like, hmm, this is a little unfair. Something's going on here. But that's that gender role thing going on. But what I would say is before puberty, I was treated equally to my brothers. And this is a common thread in like feminist literature and like with women will say that once you hit puberty, you're treated differently. That now you're like a woman. And so now all these, now it's different, right? And, and I saw that in my family. Mm-hmm. I saw that in my family's religion. I see it uh, in our culture, even today, it's a little less prevalent, but it's sort of like once, and this might be for um, boys too, but once like puberty hits, then we start going, okay, you're a woman. This is what you do. You're a man. This is what you do. I don't know if you all felt like you saw that I sure did like I got my period and it was over well even when even when yeah there was no more like being treated my dad used to teach me Mm -hmm. how to fix things and like you know so more masculine kind of well that's the generation I'm talking about Amy because even Uh in my dad when he was around he 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 would rest I remember that too he would he would be on the couch the beer with like the worst pair of underwear like the tidy whitey on the couch watching Jack Nicholas, you know, golf and drinking like a schlitz. Like I can't even make, I can't make that up. It, it was, I look back at it like, I must be making this up. That wasn't really a thing. No, he'd walk around his underwear, he'd sit his ass down, he'd have his beer and I watched my mom just working her ass up. And that's when I, I realized like what ha- why is my, why is our generation still, you still see it everywhere that these gender roles are still happening, that men get home from their job or, or men just default to the, to the, to your wife or, or the woman in your life to, for the childcare. And I don't see it a lot in my friends, but I see a lot in society. I see it a lot in people out there that, that are just still defaulting to the women have to do all the work basically with the kids. Yeah. And you know, Amy, it was sort of interesting what you said about, um, when you reached puberty that your dad sort of started to separate everybody in terms of the activities or the expectations. I think it's, really interesting when fathers or mothers, I guess, but I see it more from dads. I have a son and a daughter. They're not nowhere near puberty. Thank goodness. They're eight and five. I see other dads already separating them at that point where like you wrestle with the son, but you don't wrestle with the daughter, et cetera, et cetera. So it's kind of interesting to hear that it was sort of more codified when you reached puberty. I'm curious how that will play out. Like in my family, I don't feel like it's going to go that way, but I don't, I mean, I don't know in terms of the tasks around the house. I don't know about you guys, but like my wife I and I are, think are pretty proactive about 
not setting any standards or expectations that one gender does one thing and the other does the other thing. But I'll give you an example of where we screwed up naturally. I don't know what it was. If the four of us go on a family trip, we go somewhere, I drive the car. I drive. Um, At some point, I wasn't in the car, but my daughter said that mommies don't drive, right? Like, obviously, she does drive them when I'm not there. But I was like, whoa, I didn't even realize I'm just a slightly better driver than my wife. That uh, yeah. is what I thought. I don't know if that's true, but whatever. But I don't want to set the template that like that's how things work. So if I'm doing it there, am I doing it with making dinner? Am I doing it with laundry? Are we doing it like cleaning out the gutters? These kinds of things, even though we naturally fall into some of these roles. But I, we've talked about this on, on paternal before, like, some of the guests mm. are really worried about the impressions that they're making on their kids when they don't even know they're making an impression because kids are remembering everything. They're taking everything in and filing it away. And like you just said with your dad and his underwear, like that's in your brain, you know, decades later, right? So I'm like, oh, what am I, what have I already put in their brain that I didn't even mean to put there, even though my intentions are good? Maybe I do drive the car all the time and I don't want to do that. I want to make sure it look it's even, you know? Well, I mean, this goes down to neuroscience, so we could get really nerdy about this, but she will. I will. So um, before like age 12 and actually even earlier, like eight, eight or so, mm-hmm. we're, we're just like operating in our subconscious. So kids are just taking everything in like it's the truth. And it's not until later that you can start making decisions for yourself or like saying, you know, I don't know if I agree with that. They pretty much agree. I mean, forget the toddler, no thing, right? But they pretty much are agreeing with all the information coming in. They don't even know it. And we didn't even know it when we were kids. And the way this stuff gets into us is verbal. What do we hear? What Mm -hmm. What are people saying? Like all these little sayings that we say or the way we talk, it's verbal. And then it's modeling. Like how, what are we, what behaviors are we watching? Are we watching you drive the car, right? Um, And then it's the emotional impact. And so when I started studying this stuff and learning this stuff, I wanted to vomit, right? Like as a parent, I'm like, oh God, like I just felt like I wanted to throw up because I felt like I had royally fucked up both my kids. "Mm." (laughs) And now it's like, you can just have compassion, right? Compassion for your parents, compassion for, because they got it from somewhere. Right. So a lot of the things we say, the way we behave, like all this stuff is passed down generation to generation. And we all were like living in this paradigm. And then it takes something to interrupt it, to be like, wait a second. And then when you interrupt it, then you have to start speaking differently and acting differently. (laughs) So I find this fascinating. But if you're a parent and you're listening to this and you're like, oh, my God, I've fucked up my kids. Like, calm down. Give yourself a lot of compassion. And there's always time to have conversations and model different behavior. And That's good to know. That's good to hear. Because I probably like everybody else, even though. I host the podcast with men and guys trying to be good dads. I know I've already screwed 10 things up with them, with both of them. And I'm trying, but I, there's little things that I, I hope I can make up for later. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> I can, I, I, I tend to think that, you know, that idea that just spending time and, seeing those roles that we have, because Amy and I are the the same. We have split roles in everything we do and Mm -hmm. they may never realize that 
Um, women do laundry. Women do laundry. That's exactly what I was going to say. Like, like I think we've I gone. Never did the I think we've gone too far where they don't know that women might do the laundry. Because I, again, like you, I do the laundry better. So it's better if I, if <laughs> I too. do it, it'll get done right. <laughs> In my, in my dumb brain, but no, we've, we've like been able to go so far to an extreme. You almost have to look at it the other way. Like they, but it's a good thing. They don't really know in our yeah. family. And, and I think what it took for me to get there is not what it's going to take everybody. I was t- talking to Amy earlier about this being raised by my mom. Mm-hmm. I saw an absent father and then having an ex-wife who left, uh, the, the, the parenting responsibility to her husband at the time. And then we divorced it was really two models that I saw where those roles didn't make, like, I don't have that history. It's sort of erased from our, from my past. But I, at the same time, you took, you know, Amy, you bring up too, like generations. And and we've talked about this, Nick, where we we're trying to break a a habit or a chain that we've seen. Mm -hmm. And at the, you realize how hard that is. Cause I remember when I was getting divorced, I, I couldn't believe I was getting divorced because I wanted to stop that. So to a fault, to a, to a, I'm damaging myself and my child, because I don't want to make the same mistakes as my parents. And I realized the mistake was already made. I married the wrong person. Right. But in some ways, like we're trying so hard that I flip over to the other side and I make errors because I'm overcompensating for this because I don't know. I just don't know what to go by. I, th- I agree with you that it definitely feels for however proactive you want to be to try and flip the script or change the script. Like I'm not going to do what was modeled for me. Um, and, and I should say like, my dad was a fairly good role model. I don't really have any qualms with him. So it's not that huge of a deal. I don't have a lot of damage to repair, but there's things I want to improve on. That being said, I do feel like I'm, I'm on a treadmill. I'm going against the flow. I'm swimming upstream with some things. And I think you and I talked about this, John, when you came on the show, it's like when my mouth opens up and a voice comes out in a disciplinary moment, it's my father's voice. Mm-hmm. It's innately my father's voice. And that when I hear that, I feel like I'm pushing a rock up a hill or I'm, like I said, swimming against the current. And that is really hard because it's in your DNA. It's absolutely in there. And so many of the guys on paternal have discussed that too, where it's just, it's part of me. So how do I proactively change all these big behaviors, all these different things when it's a fundamental part of like my existence and how I was raised? Um, I don't have the problem. I don't think where I over overcompensate. I think uh, you've told me that before in our conversations. You just don't know. I, I feel like I should give them every waking second. I feel like <laughs> yeah. I give my kids as much as I can until I fall over on you know on the floor and I'm exhausted. But I feel like I don't know. I don't feel like I overcompensate at this point. But I do, and this is another thing that comes up on the show all the time. I don't know about you guys. Like I am constantly thinking and worrying about them. My kids are little, so they're still semi-vulnerable to the world. And then I think about the larger stuff too that is happening in the world and I'm just terrified. But that's something that comes up on our show a lot is men's anxiety around all this stuff. All this things we're talking about, like trying to change behavior and change the trend and swim against stream creates all this like tension and anxiety um, all the time. Yeah, I was going to ask when, so when you talk to other men about um, the tools, uh, I see sometimes even to some of my like friends who I think are pretty enlightened to, to things that help, you know, I bring up my therapy. Yeah. I go, you know, every week or every other week. And I have friends who are like, yeah, that's, yeah, I, nope, I got my, you know, my buddies for that. And I, and I immediately say, well, it's not fully, that's not totally fair to your buddies, just FYI. Like, you need a third party, you know, so we, we, and it's good. We have a really good conversation. But when I bring up some of the tools, meditation, yeah. Um, going for walks, um, yep. uh, therapy, 
uh, even diet and sleep, that me one or two or three or all of the above will meet resistance, especially for men. I don't, they see it as a weakness somewhere. And where does that come from? Yeah, that's a good question. I will say just in full disclosure, like making paternal led me to therapy because I was, I I don't know, I never thought of going. I don't know if I was proactively like reluctant or I thought it was soft. It just never crossed my mind that that's something you would do, which is take your problems out of your Mm. own brain, right? We're so, men is so reluctant. We're so valued by being stoic and white knuckling through it. I never thought to see somebody else. So in making paternal, like I spoke to two therapists in the span of one weekend. I went out to Boston and talked to two therapists and they were like operating on another plane of existence and self-understanding. And I was like, I, whatever these guys have, I'm not going to be a psychologist. I'm not going to be there. But like, I want a percentage of what these guys are doing. <laughs> and so I, in, you know, and I went back and be started going to therapy in terms of the outlets. I think for me, I, I agree with you, meditation, fit, you know, physical activity, working out, running, whatever it might be. Therapy's huge. And, I, and the reason I say Therapy is huge. And maybe you guys can speak to this. It's like, if you're a guy going through uh, some sort of a crisis, you lost your job in COVID, any number of other things that can happen to you. If you put all that weight on your partner, then she is the only one or he is the only one that you talk to, it gets really fraught really quickly because it's not that person's responsibility to carry your Mm. weight all the time. But men are so reluctant to go outside of their familiar circle, certainly not with a stranger in a, you know, Fraser Crane type of office, right? Like that's not going to happen. But I will say the one time that that I eventually went to therapy, like I was having conversations with my wife and my wife was just exhausted. Like I can't help you anymore. I can't do it. It's not me. I love you. I think you're fine. You're going to make it, but you need to talk to somebody else. And so it does take a amount of courage to just say, fuck it. I'm, I got to talk to somebody else because the marriage is more important to me than my ego or my pride or my male, whatever it might be. But I agree with you. There's other guys I know, and I'm sure you do. I'm like, you could probably benefit from therapy, man, <laughs> yeah. but I know you're not going to go. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And Amy, we've been through that. We In the pandemic, <laughs> she had to turn to me. Yeah. And say, I Go. love you, but I need a break. <laughs> yeah. Time out. And, it, yeah. and my, you know, my first reaction, it was like, what, what do you, what, I'm fine. I'm fine. What do you, yeah. Why, and, and what do you mean? You're my, what? and then it was like, oh my God, as soon as the words came out of me, I swear, Amy, I swear to God, it was minutes later that I went, oh fuck. I mean, the fact that I reacted like that, that she yeah. has to talk to me and is, and, and has the ability to tell me that yeah. I would have trouble saying like my own confidence. I would have trouble saying to my partner, luckily Amy's better than I am balancing how <laughs> talking about everything, but I, you know, I, I would feel uh, it takes some, some confidence and, and smarts to do that. Amy is what I'm trying to say. Thank you. You're welcome. You know what? Um, <laughs> Digging the hole deeper. Is like, <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts right now, but one of them <laughs> is about mental health just in our culture is yeah. sort of, it's only recently that people are being a lot more honest and talking about it. That's the first Mm -hmm. thing. And then the second thing is I feel like we're living in a culture that's operating from like a broken masculine place. And what that means is, is it's a place of like control, trying to control people. And that's how like oppression happens and things like that. And, but masculine qualities are awesome. There's like leadership and communication and structure. And like, those are all great masculine qualities. But then what happens is if you're trying to always control something, you don't want to feel vulnerable. 
And then if you're going to talk to your buddies, you know, some of them won't even talk to you about that yeah. stuff, let alone, you know, if you go to, yeah. you know, make fun of you, if you go to therapy or something or, you know, question that. And I know with my brothers, it took a lot to get some of them to go to therapy. We, my sister died very tragically and was awful. And um, it was not until some of them went to therapy that I started to see the shift of healing, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. But we can't wait for those tragedies to happen. Like what, what would the world be like if we just, you know, normalize this? Yeah. Do you think it's, it's getting more normalized or it feels like there's been a, a somewhat of a shift over the last few years, especially because of COVID and so many people were isolated to the extent that now I almost think it's been, it's almost been so simplified. You can, you know, there's so many services now that are like online therapy and you can call it's 20 minutes and it's discreet and it's confidential. It's almost uh, been oversimplified, but it does feel like over the last few years, there's been a shift towards more attention to, of, on mental health and even among some men, you know what I mean? Yeah, that, I think it's been normalized more. I think conversations like this absolutely yeah. have an impact yeah. where we can talk about it. And I just think that I think you have to hit bottom and the numbers yeah. on middle-aged men, especially, mm -hmm. uh, and suicide rates are unbelievably terrible. Like they've just increased mm -hmm. tenfold. And that absolutely makes sense. And I think a pandemic has caused a lot of us to look at you know, every tool available and part, if their partners, like our partners have said, you, you need to, you need help. Like this is, you can't keep this anywhere. Like we're stuck. Maybe this is the, you know, the silver, you have to find silver linings in this. And one of the silver linings is everything's out. I think at least your role, how you want to live, how you yeah. want to be is all been questioned. So I think having yep. your partner say, enough, and, and the ones who don't, you're seeing divorce rates and you're seeing yep. other things go up. So what what choice do you have? So during this pandemic, I don't know about you, but the people you've talked to, I think it's had this major impact yeah. on both our identity as a parent, um, on just our roles and and how we take care of ourselves. Yeah, I, and I think to, to your point from a few minutes ago, it's allowed men to spend a lot more time with their kids. If they were traditional mm -hmm. nine to fivers and commuting to the office, et cetera, et cetera, staying late, make sure work was done. I think that's changed and been flipped on its head for a lot of guys, um, women too, especially. But but I think. Uh, that has changed for a lot of men that they're just what they knew, whatever framework or template that they thought was it was in concrete is not in concrete. You can change your life. And I will say on that therapy topic, we had an episode, a few episodes, somewhere in the 48 or 47, we had a British guy who his wife passed away. They were very stoic. They didn't talk about any of this stuff. His wife passed away and he didn't tell his son was very young when the wife passed away and they wouldn't tell the son anything about the wife because they didn't want him. It was just too much. It was just too hard to talk about. And so they didn't tell the guy about his mother until he was 18. And he, they brought out some pictures and they brought out all these trinkets and all these memories. And then the son eventually spent a number of years making a film about finding out things about his mom, learning about his mom. I say that because the guy, the father was 70 years old when he went to therapy to go back and start analyzing the damage that that death had done to him and the trauma and sort of working it out. And I think one of the things that I, we talked about the things I've learned on paternal is like men can change. Like I'm always impressed by their ability to change if they're willing to dig in and make the change. And if that involves therapy, great. 
But if, if a guy who is a pretty stoic British man who descended from like people who worked in the mines in Scotland can go <laughs> see a therapist to talk about toxic masculinity when he's 70 or to talk about trauma when he's 70, gives you a lot of hope that if you're willing to put the work in and maybe put your ego or your male ego to the side, you might be able to fix some things in your life. How do you um, address dealing with toxic masculinity and this 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 sort of broken masculinity that Amy brings up that that has caused a lot of trauma and just some terrible things in our society and continues to we see it through covid yeah. for sure we saw it through the the mask mandates and the election yeah. and all that you there's a there's a common thread there but what i'm wondering is cuz i have this almost apologetic feeling of privilege when i feel like i'm working on men's issues i feel like <laughs> like yeah. we don't deserve it. You know, I, I honestly have that feeling a lot. Like yeah. I need to apologize if I'm bringing up men or that we need help. It's like, we've been given everything. So yeah, why the I fuck agree. are we, why are we dealing with this? Did you know yeah, what I mean? I agree. I mean, look, when, when I started the show, I looked around to see what other shows were there. So what was already in the space. And I didn't find a lot of shows that I liked. It was a lot of superficial stuff about uh, men talking about their man caves and things like that. I'm oversimplifying, but that was yeah. what was there. Yeah. And um, the last thing I wanted to do was make another show hosted by a man talking about men, right? Because <laughs> exactly. we don't need it. We're, we have plenty of them. Um, but I think in the terms of the toxic masculinity, it doesn't come up specifically on our show that often. We've even had guys come on the show that specialize in this kind of stuff and they visit with NFL players and they visit schools and they talk to athletes and also police officers and say, I hate the term toxic masculinity because it just puts the onus on what's wrong. If we can focus on building better men that are willing to be good men, they're out there. And I think Paternal shows that there's so many men that I meet, yourself included, John, I'm like, I'm so glad I met that guy. That's a good dude. That gives me hope that if there's one of him, maybe there's a hundred, maybe there's a thousand. So we don't address toxic masculinity like, hey, let's rid this. It's a kind of, unfortunately, as Amy said, like it's out there and has been sort of imbued on this generation of men from the previous generation and from the previous generation from there. I think it's more like, how can we set an example of, here's what these guys are trying to do to make themselves better people. And maybe through osmosis, a guy will listen to the show because he might not pick up a parenting book and he's not maybe going to talk to his friends. He might listen to this show and find like, oh, I learned something from John Richards or I learned something from another guest. It feels like a space that I can go to in my headphones. Nobody knows I'm listening to it because I'm walking the dog and I don't have to admit that I listen to a show where guys talk about the feelings and we get those emails all the time. If we can create that kind of show and like that kind of community, then it's like maybe gradually we can just help or like commiserate, like we said, there's the whole point of it with good men, instead of focusing on the toxic masculinity that we know, like Amy said, is, is everywhere, really. Well, I think it also comes down to men recognizing it in themselves. Yeah. And that can be hard, especially when it's imprinted on you from generations previously. And John and I talk about this all the time. Like every once in a while, he'll be like, oh, fuck, I'm doing that thing. <laughs> and... <laughs> And, and, and I would say for other people, you know, myself, women included, you know, what happens to women is women can withdraw into sort of this victim martyr role, you know, like 
against that sort of broken masculine role. And I'm not saying you have to be a man or a woman to take on these roles. I'm just saying that these are kind of the behaviors that exist Mm -hmm. instead of talking about, you know, compassion and communication and um, being open to learning new things and, you know, leadership and, uh, you know, some of those things that are all positive qualities. But I do think that it does take recognizing it in yourself and you, you may not see it right like it's a you hear about blind spots but we all have them right we all have blind spots that we're always trying to address yeah getting men to admit when they're wrong is a huge step towards that that yeah that to me is the thing that i i took forever and i don't know where that came from but i see it in a lot of my buddies too like like just just doubling down on bullshit just I am not going to admit, and I thought, man, once I cross that river, I never look back. Uh, I was like, I feel empowered because the quality I see in a person when they apologize or they own something is, I think that's one of the finest qualities in any human being. I think if you can do that, forgiveness is up there and that's sort of in the same area as, as just owning your shit is, is, is what I'm trying to also teach my boys is you got to own this, man. If you, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear because that's where I slip up. <laughs> yeah. And the, and the idea of, can you ask for help if you don't know it, right? right. If you don't know what you're doing or you screwed up uh, and now I need help to figure this out. I'm not exactly sure how to go about this. And especially that pertains to parenting because a lot of people, especially men are like, I, I don't know necessarily what I'm doing. It doesn't feel natural, et cetera. You kind of have to learn as you go. But the ability to, to be humble and either admit what you screwed up or hopefully ask for help before you screw up um, is a huge step. And once you can do that, I think you're right, John, you don't look back and you feel incredibly empowered to make better decisions, act like a better person, set a better example for your kids. But to do all that, you got to put your ego on the shelf for a second. You know, speaking of that, too, you know, you touched on it earlier and, and you're with a couple of people who deal with this. Um, it's your own identity. So your identity as a host of this great podcast as a parent. And you mm-hmm. said, and then I screw up or I, you know, I don't, I don't do the thing that I learned. And Amy is, a, you know, a doctor. She's teaching mm-hmm. people and, and telling them how to be healthy and, and runs in, you know, and I'm not saying she's unhealthy all the time, but it comes up <laughs> once in a while. You know, me, I was listening to uh, Sister Christian the other day and it sounded great to me. I, so, I, you know, same with me, same with me. And I feel like as a, in the, the guy who's the independent DJ, there's something wrong with me. I am, and also a few other things too. Mine is not just that, but I do like a good cheesy ballad. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. But also, as a guy who's on the air talking about the tools you need and mental health, man, I beat myself up when I, I'm like, I tell people to do this and I don't do it. So, for those people out there, and these job teacher, you're a teacher. You have, pe- you have you're teaching. You're telling these, these kids to act a certain way. Then you then you do the absolute opposite. I think people struggle with more with that identity crisis than we talk about. That you have a role in society, and then in your own life, you're not you're not doing all the things. And I, I, I think we're I think you're asking someone to be perfect. So of course that's impossible. But how do you deal with that? How do you deal with it? Well, I have to say personally, like I don't consider myself an expert on this stuff in any way, so to speak. So like if I was really a psychologist who had studied for 20 years on like we're talking about toxic masculinity or child psychology, I would probably hold myself to a higher standard. I think for me, 
I don't know. I, I liked what Amy said, and I, I think both my wife and I subscribe to this. I'm like, we try and go easy on ourselves. We're doing our best, and we are, you know, we are going to make mistakes. We're under a lot of pressure because of work and obviously over the last two years, COVID, et cetera. Like you're going to make little mistakes. But I do think there's so much value. And in, in John, you mentioned it too. It's just the ability to communicate with your kids when you screw up, admit it, and then you know communicate with your kids. So if you think you did make a mistake, can you fix it in that night when they go to bed, when they're actually – they're laying there with you and their brains are, at least for little kids, their brains are working and they can actually receive things instead of during the day when they're running around crazy. But no, I don't, I, I, I can't hold myself to like some standard of I'm an expert on this and I have to be, no, I can't do it because I got into this whole thing because I didn't know what I was doing. Right. The whole root of this was like, I was thinking about this all the time yeah. and there's gotta be men out there that are willing to talk about this because I wasn't going to sign up for a men's group. I don't know if there were men's groups. I was in Seattle at the time, but I don't know where I would have found five guys to talk about parenting and anxiety and fatherhood, et cetera. And so I got into it because I wanted to learn from people like you and these other 50 guys that we've talked to, not because I was already an expert, but definitely because I was a novice trying to get better. You know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah, I'm going to screw up. Uh, you know, as long as I don't lay on the couch in my underwear and drink Schlitz. That's right. I feel like that's the bar and I'm, I'm okay. I'm all right. Well, I always say no one has their shit together. Yeah. Right. I mean, quite honestly, are, nobody does. <laughs> right. And we all are just a big hot mess, you know, at some point, you know, and then we, and then we learn things and we get our shit together and then we don't have our shit together. Yep. And it's just a constant, um, cycle of learning and relearning and trying our best and growing. And I think the trick is, is that when you do see a moment to grow, right? Like it's right in front of you, <laughs> but it might require something, right? Mm -hmm. Might require you to dig deep. But at the end of the day, nobody has their shit together and we're all doing our best, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say like, I had a conversation with a friend of mine like two years ago, and I don't know if you guys do this, but I was thinking like, man, if one guy has it together, he's got the house and he's got the car and his kids are good kids and nice kids. And his, he and his wife have been married 10 years. He's doing great. That guy is it. He's doing great. Went to the bar with him pre-COVID when you could do that. Went to the bar with him. And I told him, I was like, oh, I'm struggling with a couple of things here and there. And he just, just unloaded all the stuff that he was going through. And it blew my mind. I was so appreciative and so thankful that he did it. But the facade that I had put up, that he he didn't put it up, I did on his behalf. That was, this guy's doing great at life. He's crushing life. No, he was a total mess. And he's fixed some things and he did go see a therapist, et cetera. But it was just so eye-opening to know that like, oh, even the, the guy that I thought was doing the best is not doing okay at all, you know? How do you, how do you think as we, you know, I want to address, um, this idea of, you know, these midlife crises, this middle age <laughs> that we yeah. are headed to. I just, the other day looked at Amy and I said, do, do I cover the gray that's showing up on the sides here? What is, what is the, what are we doing here? Is this, I can't believe I'm having that in my mind. I am in my twenties still. And all of a sudden I'm like, the fuck is going on over here to the side of my head? And the answer was no, by the way. And it is unfair because men age gracefully. Yep. You know, we are supposed to go gray and it'd be what it, we're, we're, um, what's the silver word? Fox. Like, what's that? The silver fox. Yeah. I'm like distinguished. That's what it is. Right. right? Sure. You're yeah. just old. 
That's yeah. the standard. No, women get totally beat up more over it. Yeah. Um, and, and, but at the same time, I think of, again, previous generation, you know, there was a path. You got married, you got the job, and you got the kids, and then you work, and then you retire, and then you golf or whatever the fuck you do, and then you die. So, yeah. and then this midlife crisis thing kept happening. You know, my, again, my father, I've told that story before, but the mother of all midlife crises it involved a Mustang convertible, sex with a nurse, uh, Clearwater, Florida, and a few other things I'm leaving out. So he, he had the full on, I, I, I just think so much of that is identity, not being yeah. true to yourself. And you hit a certain age and you go, well, I haven't done anything that I really want to do. And you panic and you make bad decisions. I, I think our generation isn't, I just don't see us having that. I've already had three or four of those. Like I already, <laughs> I mean, like I, I, you know, I bought a Mustang when I was 18 from a cop, you know, for $500. Like that was my Mustang buying midlife. My dad was a different one in Mustang buying midlife crisis, but I thought I was losing my mind at 20 and completely yeah. changed my life. And I just don't think, I think we already do that. I think the generations before us, you got one job and then what happens when you lose that job and that one career? I, I'm, I think with, I, I'm curious how we're going to age is what I'm getting. <laughs> like, how are, how is this generation, Nick, you and I, how mm -hmm. are we aging? How, what are we doing? Well, I definitely think like up till now, my life has been different than you're sort of setting out a template, right? For the previous generation. Like you just yeah. said, you, you go to college, maybe you marry your college sweetheart, you move to the suburbs that you have the job at the, at the auto factory, That's et cetera. Right. And then you retire, you get the pension and you die. I play golf and then you die. I've already like, I'm 42, almost 43. I've already had, I don't know how many jobs, I've, how many careers, how many different things. My wife and I got married a lot later than my parents got married. We had kids later than uh, my parents had kids. It feels like a totally different template if there even is one. And I'm actually curious more about the generation that's younger than us, the mm, kids, yeah. especially now going through COVID, like the 20 somethings and the 30 somethings when they see the economy just fall for a year and now they have to figure out work and they work remotely. They don't even go to an office, these kinds of things. So like the whole template is different for us and then for the generation that comes after us. In terms of like us aging, I agree with you, John. I don't really care. Um, what the number says of how old I am, yeah. I actually feel like I'm okay. And I actually, when I turned, I think 41, I had this kind of like revelation where I was like, actually, I can put the energy into the things I want to now better than I ever have. So a project like paternal or exercise or meditation, like now I know there's value to them. Whereas before I never... I don't know, in my 20s, I was really scattered. All you think about is dating or trying to get a job or trying to make money. Now it's like, okay, I have some of those things lined up. How do I really focus on the practices that will make my daily life better? So is that seeing a therapist, meditating, physical fitness, et cetera? And that's like, if I put my energy to that, I feel like I can do anything. And that feels noticeably different than when I was in my 20s and I was just a hot mess trying to talk to a girl at a bar. You know, <laughs> it feels totally different and empowering at the same time. Well, we are the youngest we will ever be in every moment. That's a great right way to now. I'm the youngest I will ever be, right. and so I'm not going to nerd out too much. But aging really doesn't have a whole lot to do with the number from a physiological standpoint. It has a lot more to do with you know what's going on at a cellular level. But mm -hmm. we, I won't go into that. But I do think that it matters more how you feel. And how yeah. you feel about yourself. So not just physically, but mentally, like in your head. 
when people finally are getting to that point in their life where they have a lot of self-trust and they are making decisions that align with their value system or that they're no longer giving a shit like what people think about them <laughs> honestly that's like that's like the holy grail to youth right there it's just mm -hmm. like you finally step into yourself in a way that you hadn't before and so you're not you don't have all this noise and this chatter of everybody else and you're you have this sort of like why not attitude like fuck right. it i'm gonna mm -hmm. you know live a life i want mm -hmm. i got an email the other day that, that said they hate me they hate my show you're you're old stop doing this and it totally hit me like and it never occurred to me it was the first time i actually thought am i it, i i've never thought about that i it never even occurred to me until some guy who's probably older than me by the way because right. i you know their hotmail address their their aol or whatever it was right. um gave them away you got sure an AOL. Sign. when i get the hate mails <laughs> sure sign it's gonna be even yeah. one of those accounts and i actually had to think like I, I haven't had this conversation with my, again, it's like the seeing the gray hair on the side of my right. fucking yeah. head. I was like, okay, mm, I think I'm okay. Cause I, to me, when I stop loving new music, when I stop wanting to discover music, for instance, that's mm -hmm. that day I, I promised myself years ago, I'd quit like that day. I would say like, yeah. I'm done. I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't, I don't, some of the best DJs I've ever known are older right now actually and are still going strong so it never occurred to me of mine i was just making sure we weren't kidding ourselves you know what i mean like you're convincing yourself like well no i'm young i feel young and like wait did other generations do this and then i see pictures of the generation before me at my age mm -hmm. i feel pretty good yeah <laughs> i feel pretty good like my dad at 40 whatever is at 40 was a disaster and i and i think you know and i don't want to like just compare myself to people who aren't taking care of themselves but i think we've just done better i think we have a we have some hope here and I hope we pass that on to this next generation because they're going to need it. Like you said, Nick, going through this pandemic and what they're focused on, we don't even know. Like yeah. we can't mm -hmm. fully help them. We've had the pandemic, but we've had all these years to deal with other shit to get to this point. This is the like core. This is a huge percentage of your life. Uh, Henry, my son, you know what? It's 20% of his life. He, he doesn't yeah. remember. Same. He doesn't remember what you do without masks and and so I wonder about those kids and I wonder what we can do to help them. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I think my kids are similar. My daughter's five. So the pandemic is coming up on two years now. So yeah. the only kindergarten she knows is masks and hand sanitizer and six feet apart and all these things. I mean, they seem to be doing fine. And any number of psychologists, you'll read articles all the time like these. This is how these kids are dealing with it. They're OK, etc. But I do wonder what like the long term effects of it will be for some of these kids. And you're right. Like, I can't identify. I don't know. Like, yeah. I know what it's like for me and parenting and online learning and da, 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 but I can't, I, I don't understand what's going on with, you know, for my son in second grade with all these distractions and everything going on in his life. And so I don't know, every time I, I, I think about those things, and this, again, this is one of the lessons that I, we've learned on maternal is just like, if you can give them a safe space at home, where they know what they're getting into. It's familiar. They know they're loved. They know they're cared for. They know that things are okay and they're safe. Oftentimes that can compensate for whatever anxiety might be happening at school because their teacher has a mask on all the time or whatever other challenges they're dealing with. So, I mean, you got to be able to control the things you can control. Henry said, what, what did you guys do when when you had a pandemic, <laughs> dude, I, you're looking you at this. It. Yeah, I, this is it. And then my oldest the other day just said, well, what did, 
did you have something like this then? My teenager mm-hmm. said, that. I said, well, the thing we always worried about was uh, nuclear war. Like mm-hmm. that was going to wipe us out. He said, well, that's not gone. As I go, oh no, that threat's still the same. It's just the other threats, uh, existential threats are so uh, in right here now. It's like third or fourth on the list. And I right. thought, well, that yeah. was a bad answer. That's not the best answer, but it was honest. <laughs> it was honest, yeah. <laughs> it's like, how do you, how do you, uh, what are we navigating here? Like, what what have we handed our children? And I, yeah. I, I don't know, again, it's like apologizing for, you know, men in our world who, who, for the majority of the mistakes and bad stuff that's happened, it's usually a white dude. And yeah. yep. that is hard. That is hard to, to navigate how I deal with that. The guilt I have, the how I want to be better. I want, I want other men to be better. I think it gets back to what we started with too. And that's, Hey, if, if we all can be better men and we can pass this on and we can look out for one another and we can look out for other people as men at, in position of privilege and power and yep. share that there might be hope. That's all I can do. Yeah. You can only control what you can control, right? You're not going to rid the world of toxic masculinity or, or, you know, men in power that have daddy issues and are trying to make up for it and try and, you know, win their daddy's approval by doing whatever. I, I think you can only control the things you can control. And right now, you know, you guys have a couple kids. You can try and make a positive impression on them. And, you know, John speaking for you and, and Amy as well, like you guys make a positive impression on a lot of people, you know, via the radio station or via your, your medical practice, Amy. So it's like, what can you control to make a positive imprint on other people? Um, that's what we've tried to do with paternal, but it's it's the other guys that come in and do it and they tell their story. And then hopefully another guy can go, dang, I never thought of it that way, but that's exactly how I feel. Yeah, yeah. We're just giving them the, I just press record. And then these <laughs> guys come in and they tell their their story, but collectively it does work and it makes a good impression on people. Storytelling is always great. And to be able to storytell. And and before we go, I want to ask too, like, has there been a guest recently that, that, that surprised you that, that, that you just were kind of blown away by that you, that, that you would love to direct people towards too, you know, like a conversation you've had recently with, we had Johnny Marr recently and, yeah. and he talked about his guitar solo from how so it is now. Now that's different, but something did come out of that for me. I was just kind of like blown away at how that man can create something. And it seemed, uh, it just, it kind of blew my mind. I love sitting and talking to people and just being super surprised or learning something. Do you have have you had that moment recently? Yeah. I mean, I think uh, like I learned something from every guy. I mean, I definitely learned a few things from you. Uh, The first time I spoke to you way back when I learned something from every guy, but most recently we had a guy, um, this guy's named Jesse Thistle, who is um, Canadian. He lives uh, in Canada and his maternal side is indigenous, effectively native American for the United States, but indigenous in Canada. And I won't get into the whole thing, but he really struggled. His dad was absent. Like I said before, he disappeared when he was three. He was into drugs and alcohol, and he really struggled throughout his life until he finally sort of figured his way out when he was much older. And I didn't think he was a dad when I went into the episode. I was like, okay, this guy's not a dad. Every once in a while, we have a guy who's not a dad. And then at the end, I was like, I know you're an uncle, but like, are you a dad? Did you just decide not to have kids? And he goes, oh, my wife's pregnant right now. We're having a kid in three months. And here was this guy sitting on like generations of intergenerational trauma from his father, grandfather, great grandfather. And here is this opportunity right in front of him in three months from when I spoke to him to reverse this trend. This is the guy that we're talking about right now to say, I've had 
you know, 70 years of shit piled on my back. This is my chance with this little girl. And ultimately he, his wife became pregnant because the book did really well. It was like the best selling book in Canada. He won a bunch of prizes, financial, you know, he won money and he used the money for IVF. And so like, this is like his once in a lifetime chance to make a difference. And the kid was born, little girl was born in December. And so now he's on Instagram and it's him holding his daughter. You know what we all do when we have kids, you post every waking second on Instagram. <laughs> and now he's living this experience that you and I have been talking about, which is like, how do you reverse the trend of what's been handed to you and start fresh for a new generation? That one blew my mind. And we got a lot of positive feedback and it was just like, yeah, you can hear it in his voice saying, I got to I got to reverse this. I got to fix it. That was a really cool one. Yeah, man, that yeah, I always remember. I forget too. like in my family, you know, the Richards, I point out just generation of generation of just, yeah. mm -hmm. just a mess. And I realize that I need to stop and be proud that I stopped it here and I'm able to stop it with my boys. Like that is not a thing. And then again, if you're in the bar is sometimes that just stop just think of other people think think of 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 what you could do and what you could accomplish if you just stop this trauma at some point um my brother and i were able to and yeah. and you know and and in different ways and so it stopped it's not going to then start back up in theory right I mean, hopefully, unless I yeah. raise them terribly. We, we had another guest on the show once that said effectively the same thing. It's like, it's our job to take the ball that's, you know, our ancestors carry the ball down the field as far as they can go. And then we try and take it as far as we can go and try and break as many of the bad habits, let's say, that maybe they gave to us. Um, but he was also careful to say, and I will agree with him on this, is that however good job, you know, you think you're doing your kids are going to get something That's they're true. going to resent you yeah. for something they're going to think true. you could have done better at x y or z and uh, maybe they'll start a podcast about parenting like what <laughs> but I, I want them if when it when and if they fuck up i want it to be on them i that's the, <laughs> no it wasn't me they're, they're they yeah. did it on their own see i can blame my dad but <laughs> <laughs> right. They, yeah. I, I'll just keep going back to that. It was his fault. He was absent. I couldn't yeah. do a thing about it. See, right. I want my kids to have nothing, but they'll find something. <laughs> they always do. Whether it's, you know, trying to interrupt how you were parented by a father figure or, or anything in life, I think that we inherit all kinds of shit, right? And there's so much that is passed down to us that isn't our fault per se, mm -hmm. right? But it is our responsibility. Like once, once you're a grown up, <laughs> once you're an adult, whether something is your fault or not, it becomes your responsibility, right? And then mm -hmm. that's all we can do is generation after generation is learn the lessons and then try not to fuck up so bad. And then we will, and that's fine. And then with every generation, you would hope there's progress. And that's not necessarily true, though. We go backwards, a lot that you hope we're learning the lessons about how to do this human being thing, you know, and how to yeah. give a shit about other people and, and be, have a compassionate world. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Leave the world better than you left it. Just like a room. Just like I would tell my kids, you know, <laughs> camping, just like camping. camping. Yeah. It's camping. <laughs> Take your shit out. Yeah. Pack in, pack Burn out. Burn it. <laughs> Uh, Nick, thank you so much for spending some time with us. I cannot recommend his podcast enough. Paternal is a great resource uh, for men. And I know women listen as well. Um, yeah. I, it isn't just for men. It is It is a really great, there's insight. There's everything from uh, from gay dads, dads going through opioid addiction, the, um, to be a white father of adopted black children in America. It's like, there's so many different themes and different 
identities that are uh, looked at and talked about on your show that uh, there's something for everyone. And you get to get some perspective on what others are going through in this. And I don't know, there's something comforting always about that through those stories. Yep. Yep, I agree. Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate the kind words. And, um, you know, again, it all started with John Richards. That was the first episode way back when. <laughs> no pressure. So, no no pressure. pressure. But it was, it was a high bar set right out of the gate. All right, we want to thank Nick Fershaw for hanging out with us. Nick's a great dude, and uh, I just feel like with him out there, I feel less alone as a as a father. There's a lot of us out there doing our best. Yeah, that was great. That, that was great was, talking to him. Thank you, Nick. We appreciate you. We want to thank the band Blushing. Again, Possessions, the album. There's going to be a song coming up from it. I just uh, I dig this band a lot, clearly. Uh, we want to thank our sponsors as well. Minor Figures just joined the party, and if you're not familiar, we actually have Minor Figures... At the bar. I've known about Minor Figures for a while. We sell a lot of it, especially on our weekend brunches. And whenever I have a meeting at the bar, I'm hanging out. I grab one of the little mochas or lattes in the can. It's very good. I think our employees really like it, too. Yeah, they do. They do. <laughs> There's one item that goes faster than any through the employee. Uh, I'm going to take that. It is that. So that's a, that's a clear sign you're doing the right thing. So anyways, you can try Minor Figures Barista Oat. They're offering that up with a 20% off when you use the code Dr. and DJ. That's D-R-A-N-D-D-J at us.minorfigures.com. Uh, and we want to thank uh, Wonderground. We want to thank Flight Apron as well for sponsoring this podcast. Our friends at Ruinous Media. Joe, Pat, Chris, and Jay. I want to thank Jay very much. And Michael Lerner, telekinesis, doing the very catchy Dr. and the DJ theme. Had a friend tell me the other day it was in their head. They couldn't get it out. That's a sure sign of That's good thing. Awesome. Um, and thank you for all the well wishes and the support uh, around my sister and uh, all the people who reached out about grief. Again, you can find us, The Doctor and the DJ, on Instagram. And you can find me, DJ John Richards, there as well. And Dr. Amy Lindsay. And uh, now we're going to go play some midnight basketball. Let's go. Here's blushing. Blushing.